the premise was basically they take two chefs and they drop us off in the middle of nowhere. No food, no water. We had a liter bottle of water with us, but you have no extra ingredients. You've got your pocket knife. I was told I was allowed to bring two pairs of socks. I was allowed to bring a base layer, a mid layer, and my outer rainwear, and that's it. It's very much like alone in that sense. It was also a cooking competition, which made it that much more challenging. So the whole first day, all you do is build a shelter because you know that this is miserable weather. You've got to stay dry, which is not going to happen. But then you also have to forage. You have to find all of this food to be able to take to a cooking competition. So the survivalist that you're dropped off out there with is a guide that basically helps you with shelter building and collecting wood, keeping the fire going and... For some of the chefs, it was keeping the chefs alive. And for other ones, it was a really cool collaborative opportunity to work together and really try and find some cool food while trying not to freeze to death. I'm Peter McCulley. That's Chef Jade Berg, a TV show contestant on Chefs vs. Wild, where fine dining chefs are paired with a survivalist to create a five-star meal. We'll talk about the show and the chef's love of foraging in the backyard when Today in BC continues. From the latest community news to informative, entertaining reads for travelers and the cannabis curious, just visit your local Black Press Media community newspaper website to sign up today. Chef Jade Berg, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. My mouth is watering already thinking about the great dinner ingredients you're going to tell us all about that we can find right out there in the backyard and competing on the TV show, Chef Versus Wilds. But first, I'd like to find out how you became interested in cooking growing up in High River, Alberta. I think it starts even before we moved to High River, Alberta. I was originally born in Saskatchewan, in Saskatoon. And my grandfather had built a cabin about two hours north of there, near Qua Lake. Every summer, for as long as I've been alive, we would go up there and spend two weeks to three weeks up there every summer. And that's where I learned how to fish. We would learn how to cook that fish. It got to the point where I would spend every single day out on the water and grandma would just pray that I wouldn't come home with fish because they had no more room in the freezer. (laughs) And of course, I would always come home with my limit of fish every day. It really started there and then started to expand when my dad would take me fishing throughout Alberta and the mountains. I used to skip school, pretend I was sick, and stay home and watch the Food Network. And this was before you could pause. So I'd be scrambling to write down recipes or looking at the local High River newspaper. They had a food column. And I remember vividly, I was about 14 years old, and they had a a column about how to cook ribs, braising them in the oven before grilling them. And my grandparents were coming out, and I really wanted to cook a special meal for them. And that's one my grandfather still talks about. I spent all day in the kitchen. My friends were out at the river swimming around and I'm slaving in the kitchen. And they said, he must really enjoy cooking. From then on, it it just became a passion of mine. What kind of recipes were you interested in when you were 14? There was a show, actually, uh, a guy named Rob Rainford had a show called License to Grill. I remember that. He was an idol of mine, and it's neat that we've connected in recent years over social media. He's now an instructor in Ontario, but I was just fascinated with anything cooked over the barbecue. Looking back, I can see like the correlation between that and cooking over fire. I really liked that, that deep caramelization flavor. My dad was always cooking on the barbecue, and my mom was such an adventurous cook that we always had something new for dinner. She'd seen a recipe somewhere that she wanted to try, and it inspired me to try new things. So at what point did you leave the kitchen with your mom and grandmom and get into the restaurant biz? I started working just out of necessity. It's the only place that was hiring at that point. 
a little hotel called the Heritage Inn, and you know, they had a pub and a restaurant in there, and it was your typical small town, small hotel, but it just wasn't doing it for me. And there was a restaurant downtown called the Cast Iron Grill. He did everything from scratch. He made his own dough for his pierogies. He was in there in the early mornings baking bread, making stocks. I remember banging on his door, and the first time he said, look, we're just not hiring. And I kept showing up, and the one day he said, look, we're not doing great right now. This town isn't quite ready for what we're doing. It was more of a meat and potatoes town, and what I can do is I can teach you, but I can't pay you. So if you want to come in here, you want to spend your day off here, I'll pay you with food, and don't tell anyone because we were (laughs) not of age, but I'll give you a pint of beer after work. I found myself again on the Saturday mornings when all my friends would be going off on their teenage adventures and I'd be showing up for work at six in the morning and making pierogies all day from scratch, making, you know, braised lamb and demi-glace and all this really cool stuff. And I'd be able to eat it after and enjoy a pint of beer. That just made it all that much more exciting for me, but it really sparked an interest for that thirst for knowledge. You can get him out of trouble right now by saying you use the beer for marinating your steak. Yeah, that, that was exactly it. The alcohol just really helps to break down that protein structure and really makes it tender. That's what we were doing. Right after high school, you packed your bags for the West Coast. Did you have a plan? What was the goal? I just knew I wanted out of that small town for a multitude of reasons. You'd see the same gentleman sitting on the same bar stool, and he'd probably been there for 30 years. We used to call them lifers, and that was terrifying to me. I did not want to look back in 20, 30 years and see that I hadn't challenged myself and I hadn't done anything. But looking around High River, there was not that opportunity to learn like I wanted to. There was no other restaurants that I wanted to work at that I thought I could get some knowledge from. Where I looked around, I saw the culinary scene was just on fire on the West Coast. And we had made a trip over the mountains to go to my aunt's wedding when I was, I think, 16 years old. We were driving through the mountains in early March and there's snow all through Alberta in the mountains. We came through hope as you're coming down over the Coquihalla and there's flowers, the grass is green. And that was a really big enticement for me. So I knew where I wanted to be, but I didn't know how I was going to get there. One day I woke up, I said, I'm going to move to Vancouver next week. And my parents thought I was crazy. (laughs) My mom said, no, you're not. Like you don't have money. You don't have a plan. You don't know anybody there. There's no way that you can just jump on a plane and move. So I bought a one-way plane ticket with the help of my dad. And I had about $100, maybe $150 spending cash and a prepaid phone and a stack of resumes with a few changes of clothes. Um, I got off the airplane and immediate regret sunk in. As we were taxiing to the tarmac in this giant city flying over it, I looked down out the window and this was not High River anymore. We weren't in Kansas anymore and it was intimidating, but also this feeling of excitement. The first night was hard, being terrified, actually, walking around in this park, wondering, have I made the right decision? But being too proud, I was not going to call home and say, hey, I messed up. Maybe I should come home. I I started this, and I've got to finish it. Otherwise, I'm going to end up stuck in that small town. So I didn't have a plan, but I knew that I wanted to really make a name for myself there, and that started with learning. I didn't have the funds to go to school. So I got a job eventually after applying at every restaurant, it seemed, in the city. You didn't get a job the first day. Oh, no, no, not the first day, but things take about three days, I figure. And on the third day, I'd gotten called back from two of the restaurants I'd applied to. One was a cactus club, so they were chain restaurants, but at least it got my foot in the door and started getting some money coming in. Then I also got a job on the side where I had purchased a suit at Tip Top Tailors for my interview. I was going to say, so this is coming from the 150 bucks? It is, yes. I made a plan. I could use that suit 
at the store with the owner, but I had to leave it there until they would deduct it off a paycheck. Eventually, I got paid after two weeks of working at all three jobs and couch surfing. And there was a night I slept on a park bench, which was a very intimidating thing as a kid who'd never really been to the big city. But once I got paid from all three of those jobs, I had done a lot of searching at the library on Craigslist and I found an apartment and I was able to secure it. The sad realization that I had worked three jobs and I had grinded away at all three of those jobs and the damage deposit and first month's rent, I had nothing left. (laughs) Ramen noodles and sleeping on the floor for what seemed like forever. We've all been there. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not sure that most folks really realize how much moving from place to place there can be in the food industry, in the restaurant business. It can be very transient. And you've been a chef for about 15 years, so... Tell us your story of moving here, there, and everywhere. As we just spoke about, it all started with the move to Vancouver. I ended up working my way up into management by the time I was 20 years old at the Cactus Club. I was a sous chef and a junior manager, so I would run the night shifts. Gave me the foundation that I needed to be comfortable with the ordering and the scheduling and giving staff reviews and hiring processes, food costing, which was great. But then there was that thirst to move on to what was next, and that's where the moving around really starts. I would feel like I would max out my potential at one restaurant. There's a restaurant downtown that does seafood. I'm going to go work there until I learn as much as I can. For someone that hasn't gone to school, it was my way of trying to be well-rounded, which meant a lot of moving around. You know, there was Burnaby, there was Kitsilano, there was downtown Vancouver. And then eventually really just wanted to get back to the small town feel. And there was a restaurant in Powell River that I had worked with this couple previously at Cactus Club, and they said, hey, we're opening another restaurant. We'd like you to potentially come up and help us out. And I took a trip up to Powell River, fell in love with the region, and I packed all my bags and left Vancouver and did my season there where I met my spouse. She was working at the bank that handled the accounts for the restaurant, and man, she came in, I think it was four or five times after meeting her at the bank where she'd sit on the patio, and I thought she was just being friendly. (laughs) So I'd bring her a plate of nachos and a drink and... Finally, she says, look, I'm not sure if you're not into me or if you're just oblivious, but I'm very into you. And of course, me, just completely oblivious. That started a wonderful relationship. After my stint at the restaurant in Powell River, she was from Texada Island originally, so she wasn't ready to follow me back down to the city. But I knew that I had, again, being so transient in the industry, I'd done all that I thought I wanted to do there. It was a bit of a complicated scenario leaving there, but I ended up going to Texada Island and working at the Raven. It was a restaurant in Gillies Bay. What an amazing experience going from big city downtown Vancouver to an island with, what, 1,200 people on it, and you're cooking and looking at the deer out the front door, and on my off hours, I'm going and beachcombing. That was where the wild food really started to take hold. So I'm interested to know how you became involved with the TV show and became a contestant on Chefs vs. Wild. I got out of the industry for a little bit after an injury, and I started posting more videos of my adventures. I, I was more into the wild and exploring with my boys and going on adventures, picking berries and hunting. Chefs don't have hobbies. It was something that I said to Christy one morning. I said, I have no hobbies. I have nothing that interests me outside of work, and I never have. When all my friends were out adventuring and traveling the world, I was working three jobs and volunteering and staging at a restaurant to basically volunteer for the opportunity to go work for minimum wage for a chef to learn from him. I needed a hobby, and hunting and fishing and berry picking became that hobby. So to make a long story short, I started posting these videos and pictures on Instagram, and one morning I got a message in August of last year 
I said, hey, we're a casting company and we think you'd be a great fit for this TV show. If you're interested, please reach out. And as I've said to a few other people, I thought it was a scam. I disregarded it. And a couple weeks later, I saw another message and said, maybe I should look into this. And sure enough, I called her and I thought, wow, I was this close to missing out on a really cool opportunity. My wife is a fan of some of these reality type shows, particularly the one called Alone. And they're the same folks who created the show that you're on. So this show is a blend of the Alone style survival with a cooking show. So Tell us the premise. How does it go? Left Field Pictures does alone, and there's a phenomenal man named David Chang. He has a Momofuku Noodle Bar, Lucky Peach Magazine, and Major Domo Media. He is somebody I have idolized pretty much my whole career, and up until this show released, I didn't realize he was involved. He was the brainchild during the pandemic. He had gotten into alone. He said one night to, to his friend Chris Ng, he said, why don't we pitch this to the producers of Alone? There's no cooking show where you've got the survival in it as well. They went forward and made that show, and again, what an honor it was to be included. But the premise was basically they take two chefs, and they drop us off in the middle of nowhere. No food, no water. We had a liter bottle of water with us, but you have no extra ingredients. You've got your pocket knife and a bag to keep your nighttime clothes. I was told I was allowed to bring two pairs of socks. I was allowed to bring a base layer, a mid layer, and my outer rainwear, and that's it. It's very much like alone in that sense. It was also a cooking competition, which made it that much more challenging. So the whole first day, all you do is build a shelter because you know that this is miserable weather. You've got to stay dry, which is not going to happen. And you've got to stay somewhat warm and shielded from the elements. But then you also have to forage. You have to find all of this food to be able to take to a cooking competition. So the survivalist that you're dropped off out there with is a guide that basically helps you with shelter building and collecting wood, keeping the fire going and For some of the chefs, it was keeping the chefs alive. And for other ones, it was a really cool collaborative opportunity to work together and really try and find some cool food while trying not to freeze to death. This was on the Sunshine Coast, I take it. They dropped you on the Sunshine Coast somewhere? It's not very sunny there. But yes, it was on the Sunshine Coast. (laughs) Not at that particular time. No. No. And I hope it wasn't during the rainy season. My episode was the first week of November, and that was during what they call BC's Atmospheric River. I'd like to know just how much rain came down during that period. Living on the coast since 2008, Campbell River for almost eight years, I have never seen that much rain in a week, let alone been sleeping without a sleeping bag on a bed of sword ferns while all, trying to figure out how you're going to make a meal. It was the rainiest most miserable weather I have put myself through. And there there was a night where I thought, what have I done to myself here? But I'm very glad I had the opportunity to go out there and push myself. So we could nickname you the Soggy Chef. <laughs> the Soggy Chef for sure. <laughs> you know, what they don't show is I think about 10 minutes after getting there, I'm looking and standing on rocks, seeing what I could find. And I, anyone who knows me knows I'm a little bit clumsy. I fell into the ocean. My survival expert looks at me wide-eyed. You broke the first rule of survival in 10 minutes of being here. Who was your survivalist that you were paired with? He's a man named uh, Matt Martin. He's a fishing guide with Smooth River Guiding, a company that he has out in Ontario. He's used to being out in cold weather and maybe not used to being in the cold, wet weather. There's a really big difference between where I grew up, the cold, minus 30, and dry to the minus 5 and blowing sideways and rain. And that cold just soaks you to your bone. I've spent lots of time out in the bush in acclimate weather. 
but never that cold. I have never been in that much discomfort over the period of four nights. So what were the ingredients that you ended up gathering for your five-star meal? And what did you find to eat in the meantime? Because I'm thinking you probably have to, if you come across something you like, you go, oh, shall I save that for the meal? Or I'm hungry. Should I eat that now? That was a really big challenge. At that time of year, I had high hopes for mushrooms because the few weeks prior had been really good mushroom weather. There was some sun, light rain and sun. And I figured this is going to be the perfect recipe for finding some beautiful winter chanterelles, oyster mushrooms, maybe the odd pine mushroom. But once that rain set in and really started soaking the coast, the mushrooms went from being grade A to if you were going to find them, they were very subpar. So we did find some oyster mushrooms. We found a couple of winter chanterelles. I was lucky enough to find some sea urchin, which it was absolute blessing. That's one thing that I really enjoy going out and finding, and that's something I'm quite comfortable with. And then, of course, the oysters, and there was a little bit of mussels and clams, but not really anything of size that we could use for a cooking competition. We focused on trying to find berries because that was a requirement. You had to bring a berry to the kitchen. What do you find for berries at that time of year was a question I asked. So we ended up using rose hips. That was a really cool way to find something that was still in good condition. And then the shore peas that grow alongside the shore, the bladder rack seaweed that's all along the shoreline were ingredients that we all incorporated into our appetizer, our entree, and our dessert. When Today in BC continues, Chef Jade Bird talks about building a better connection to the foods around us. Discover what's happening around our province with todayinbc.com. Sign up today to get the latest news right to your inbox and never miss the news that's important to you and your family. From community news in your neighborhood to what's happening in our province, your source for daily news is todayinbc.com. Today in BC is a Black Press Media podcast. I'm Peter McCulley. Chef Jade, at what point did you become interested in the food around you, in the woods, in the backyard, along the shoreline? When we moved from Powell River back to Vancouver briefly, and we found out we had a child on the way, and then we moved to a little place called Strathcona Park Lodge. Christy was pregnant while we lived there. She worked in the office. I ran the kitchen. I could get up extra early in the morning, and I had access to their boats, so I would go on an hour fish every morning. I would go and catch a nice trout and then come back to the kitchen, and that would be my meal for when we were off work. The connection that I started to feel with those ingredients, it wasn't something I could serve to others, but it was something that I could somehow intertwine both of my passions. I taught cooking classes on Quadra Island. One of those classes, we would go down and we would scour the beach with people, find a bunch of different oysters and seaweed, and then teach people how to utilize them to the best of their ability. From there, it just snowballed. I didn't want to be the person buying meat from the grocery store to feed my family. I wanted to be the person spending hours, days, weeks out there in pursuit of an animal to be able to not only have good quality food for our freezer, but as well develop that connection, that respect, and teach my kids how to utilize the land around them. Food security is a big issue, and I really wanted to be able to show my boys that if you work hard enough, you can find some really high-quality food items, whether that's from the shoreline or the forest. So this is a family affair. Your children are involved in as you say, know where the food comes from? So my youngest son, Kobe, has been hunting with me and foraging since he was three years old. 
he used to ride around in my backpack and we would hike through the bush and go find spots to pick berries or walk up the side of a mountain and pick mushrooms. And it was very opportunistic. But now we go camping this summer and my three-year-old, or he was two at the time, he knows which berries are edible and he'll plop himself down in a patch of huckleberries and he could spend all afternoon. My son, Kobe, he can go out there and he can catch his own trout. Fast forward a bit. You had a major setback with a back injury. The doctors told you to give up your dream job, which is standing on your feet for 18 hours a day in front (laughs) of a stove. And you switched gears a little bit and became a private chef. Prior to the back injury, I was doing private chefing. So in the summer months, I would go work on a yacht or go work at an island or a private residence. And in the off season, I was running as a production manager, a local sea salt company, Vancouver Island Salt Company. After I injured my back and the surgery after, WorkSafe basically said, you're not lifting 40 pounds again. There's too much of a risk at this point with where you are. And there was a lot of soul searching at that point. My identity was, my business at that point was Chef Jade Berg. That was all that I was and all that I had ever been. There was an opportunity at that point to potentially teach or instruct culinary, which I was very excited about. The pandemic really rolled in hard and all the lockdowns happened, which shut down in-person classes shifting gears quite quickly. I looked around at who was working and swallowed my pride and I said, I can drive. That's where I was when the producers of the show reached out to me. I was driving the city bus at that time and miserable, but we were paying our mortgage. And that's really what mattered to me was that I was able to take care of my family and going on this TV show, being out there and getting myself into a cooking competition again, but not only a cooking competition, I was able to jump over these hurdles that had been placed in front of me. I took it upon myself to go to physio. My personal trainer, Logan, would meet me in the gym and he would push me to the point where I thought I was going to fall over and pass out. And that for me to go out there and conquer all of that and really rediscover, you know, my mojo, getting out of that cooking competition and looking around, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And that's where Wild Isle came from. I wanted to share my passion with everybody else around me and really inspire people to get out there and enjoy wild food. I want to do what I love doing for a living. I thought it might be fun if I tell you some of the ingredients that I've found close to home, some of the homes I've had. Yeah. Not necessarily where I am right now. And you tell me what you do with them or what they might go with. Oh, fun. Wild mint. Ooh, wild mint. Wild mint is very versatile. You can use it in savory applications, like say a chimichurri or I like to do a ceviche. Maybe we'll catch a lingcod or a greenling and add a little bit of wild mint, some spring onions, some cilantro in there. You could always do maybe a bit of a strawberry, basil, and mint jelly for over top of a cheesecake. Like the opportunities are endless. I'm a mojito guy. So going out and picking uh-huh. some uh, wild mint, that, that's just a perfect pairing for a mojito. We've used it for lamb. Oh, you know what? Lamb and mint is one of those classics I that know. you really can't go wrong with. How about fiddleheads? Fiddleheads is another versatile ingredient. There's the opportunity to just blanch, and I prefer to pickle them for some applications. Interesting. Uh, so some pickled fiddleheads, they can go great on a local cheese or charcuterie board. But then I prefer to use them maybe like asparagus, like grilled asparagus on a plate, but it's local. Right. We'll, we'll fry it up with a little bit of garlic or maybe throw it on the grill and pair that with either some wild game or a nice steak. Again, speaking of asparagus, another favorite of mine would be sandy beaches, which you have lots around here in the springtime. Go take a look for wild asparagus popping up. You know, those little tiny shoots of wild asparagus, you can fill your bag in about an hour and you've got the most tender and sweet asparagus. And, you know, it makes beachcombing just that much more fun. 
You might ruin going to the beach for me, though. I might be looking for food instead of just relaxing. <laughs> Not just relaxing anymore. Yeah. <laughs> chanterelles. Chanterelles are another love of mine. Whether it's the Pacific chanterelles or the winter chanterelles, it's a really great ingredient. And to me, it just speaks of the West Coast. There's your typical sauteing them with a little bit of maybe spring onions or like the nodding onions and a little bit of garlic and having those maybe on the side with your steak. Or we will make a demi-glace which is a really thick, reduced, whether it's veal stock or deer, whatever we have at that point, you can top a chicken breast and then top it with a chanterelle and demi-glace sauce, which is just absolutely fantastic. But you can still enjoy those in the winter months or when they're not in season. You can dry them, maybe turn them into a powder and add that really nice umami flavor to your soups or dry them and rehydrate them for soups, broths. There's so many options. You can always find mussels and clams on the beach. You sure can, and that's a favorite for mine. As long as you're making sure that the red tide isn't an issue, you could spend all day, and that's another fun one for the kids to to get the shovel and dig for clams. There's the summer classic take, which would be just a little bit of white wine and garlic and some maybe some fresh leeks or nodding onions. Or A favorite of mine is in the fall, really incorporating some local apple into there. A little bit of fennel, some bacon, and some local cider. I even used them for a cooking competition once. In Alberta, I wanted to bring a taste to West Coast for a Ronald McDonald House cooking competition. I brought these honey mussels grown off of Quadra Island. We steamed them, we marinated them overnight, and then we stuffed them with some homemade ricotta cheese that we had used using nigari, which is a byproduct of the sea salt making process. And we, so we made our own ricotta and stuffed that inside of the mussel and then enveloped that inside of a ravioli. We ended up taking home the win for that cooking competition. I've had lobster ravioli, but that sounds pretty good too. It's really neat. And it's something that you don't see on a menu often. Like it's a lot more laborious. Again, it's that slow food and taking time to prepare things. And you enjoy it more when you and your family are all involved. I'm going to give away my heritage here on this last ingredient. It's dulce. Dulce. Oh, dulce. That's a really good one that you can find just on the rocks there. It's really great in in different soups and stocks. It really helps to provide some of that really deep umami flavor. Dry it and crumble it on top of any sort of different seafood dishes to get that salty, briny flavor of the sea. I did seafood festival this year in Comox Valley, and I ended up using kelp actually as one of our main ingredients. So it's a little bit different than the dulce, but you make a seaweed salad with it. It's a beautiful ingredient, and again, it just speaks of the West Coast and the rugged shorelines that we have here. Before you became a chef using mostly wild ingredients or experimenting with those ingredients that you just find wherever you go or you're in search of them, what was your favorite dish to make or to enjoy? That's a really tough question for a chef. There is so many, but I would have to say my favorite would have to be something that involved tuna or dungeness crab it's something that growing up in alberta we did not have tuna in alberta was in a can so a seared tuna tataki was always a favorite of mine or or dungeness crab in a fresh pasta with a cream sauce now that you're the wild chef what's your favorite dish to make or to enjoy yourself that's a really tough one we just came back from the kootenays We had a wonderful experience out there with a film crew foraging, and we found matsutake mushrooms. They're so aromatic and so special. Sounds good with an omelet. With an omelet or 
We did a risotto with grouse and chanterelles and matsutake mushrooms over the fire. We enjoy eating deer at our house. And my favorite would have to be braised deer shanks or deer asabuco with some polenta. It's just comfort and it really warms you up from the inside out. I'm not that far off because uh, lamb shank is probably my number one. You mentioned you're offering your services for private dinners and classes and whatnot. Maybe you could tell us about some of the meals and the recipes that you've shared. Well, we did a really fun dinner for a family of 14 and five kids, but it was an all-plated dinner. So we ended up going into their house and they really wanted a seafood-focused menu. So the dishes that we thought would shine best were a Dungeness crab cake, but not like your regular crab cake. I make it in a ring mold, so it's only breaded on the top and the bottom. And then we serve it with a wild fennel and roasted lemon aioli and a little bit of a arugula and shaved fennel salad on the side. It's to die for. We also did a bit of a taste teaser that dinner, and it was a smoked salmon riette. And that is a wonderful way to use up some little tidbits of smoked salmon. So you'll take the salmon from your smoker, let it partially cool, and then you'll fold it in with some duck fat while it's still soft, some rendered duck fat with some shallots, lemon zest, and then we'll do a really nice preserved lemon cream cheese on top of a crostini with some pickled shallots or pickled fiddleheads. Some of the main courses that people really like to choose from are either like a wild mushroom flatbread. So we'll use wild mushrooms and we'll make a a confit garlic and a stinging nettle cream sauce with some dressed greens. They really wanted some sous vide short ribs. So basically I took four days and we made the demi-glace from scratch from roasting the bones and reducing the stock day by day. We started with 20 liters of stock and ended up with two liters of finished demi-glace. Those short ribs we cooked in a sous vide method with an emergent circulator for about 48 hours. The thing about sous vide is you control that temperature just to a absolute perfect. You're never going to overcook it and you're just going to really soften that collagen and it was melt in your mouth. But then we do really neat desserts and our takes on, you know, a creme brulee with some fur tips in the sugar on top. Something that gives it that little bit of a citrusy note. One of my classics that everybody requests is that we do some raw oysters with a cucumber and kelp mignonette. And it just goes so well. The sweetness of the melon flavor in a deep water oyster and the saltiness of the kelp. You've certainly succeeded in making me hungrier than I was before we sat down here. And so I'm going to go root through my lunchbox and see what (laughs) Mrs. McCulley has left for me, which is probably a PB&J. But I'd like you to tell our listeners what advice you would have for anybody thinking about the culinary arts as a profession and in particular, wild food. Any advice that I'd have for anyone that's wanting to get into the culinary industry is to make sure that you really focus on work-life balance. That was something that, for me, you know, not only did I put my body through the ringer for years of working far too many hours on your feet, and but also your mental health. It's something that not a lot of people talk about in that industry, but it can be so easy to become married to a restaurant, per se, and You don't have hobbies, you don't have anything. You wake up, you go to that restaurant and you work your 12, 14 hour shift and you go home and you do it all over again and it becomes a pattern of you were so passionate when you started and then you get to a point where you're burnt out. So to really make sure that you have guidelines for yourself, that you find something that you're really passionate about that's not work. For me, that's wild foods. I'm lucky enough to be able to combine my passion with my work. But really pursue your passion and don't be afraid to take risks. Most people want to play it safe, but had I played it safe and stayed in High River, I never would have accomplished half of the things that I've accomplished now. If you have a goal and you have a dream, go learn from anyone that you can learn from. Some of the best things that I had learned over the years were from our dishwashers or our prep cooks. 
make sure that you're open to learning from anybody that you come in contact with in the industry. It's a really great opportunity to expand your skill set. And for me, cooking is an industry that you're never going to know it all. And that's what's exciting for me. I could be 80 years old and have done this every day, but there's always going to be something that I haven't learned. But then when it comes to wild food, just make it a goal of going out to try and identify maybe one plant. There's so many different ways that you can get comfortable with foraging if you've never been. You could say book a class with me or even easier, go watch a YouTube video, go get a book from the bookstore and go out with some friends or some family and bring your kids out. So, you know, I'm going to identify one plant this month or one plant this season. I'm going to go make it an effort that when we walk in the woods, we go find these huckleberries or we go find these lady fern fiddleheads. Slowly start to build that confidence. And then before you know it, You've got a whole repertoire of food that you're comfortable with out foraging. It, it helps the mental health, the physical health, and it really helps your budget at the end of the month with the current cost of food. I'd like to thank Chef Jade Berg for being with us on this edition of Today in BC. If you have suggestions or comments, send us a voice message to podcast at blackpress.ca. You may be part of our podcast mailbag segment. You'll find Today in BC podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, iHeart, and Google Podcasts. Thank you.